morning. Sorry I didn't get around to shake everybody's hand today. We are short-staffed today. Uh, Nate's son Christian got married yesterday and so uh, to Sophia, and we were up there, and we have a lot of people still straggling. But So a lot of us are trying to do, uh, there's a few of us trying to do a lot today. Uh, okay, so we are still in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we are still in our Address the Mess series um, over First and 2 Corinthians, and it's called Address the Mess because the Corinthian church is a mess. It's that simple. I'd love to recap all the first of uh, First Corinthians. I just re- don't really have time. It's just Paul uh, found out the church that he was heavily invested in was a mess, right? And he's still trying to fix it in Second Corinthians. So this is one of four letters the Apostle Paul wrote the Corinthian church, but only two of them were considered inspired, okay? And these two are the ones that we're studying. Now, this is probably the most personal uh, and uh, the most autobiographical of all the letters that Paul wrote, and he wrote a lot of them. He wrote most of the New Testament. And the reason it's so personal and autobiographical is because he lived with these people. I mean, every church he set up was important, all of them. But he lived with these people for 14 or 15 months while he was setting this church up. So they became friends of his. They became like family to him. And when you go into an endeavor like this, like when we started this church, you know, several years ago, um, the bond you have with the people that take those first steps with you is is, is, uh, a very powerful bond. And so this made it really hard for him because he was very personally invested. These were his friends um, and made it very painful when he saw what was going on there. Now, uh, when he heard these struggles and the, the spiritual regression, he got really worried about them. He didn't want this church uh, to fail, so he started this correspondence through letters that were being hand-delivered, uh, which is always dangerous back at that time because everyone hated Christians, and anything they could do to stop the flow of information they would do, so even delivering those letters was probably dangerous. Now, there is evidence that Paul visited Corinth after the first letter he sent them, but before the second letter. Now, when he went to visit them, He's probably thinking the letter had to have some effect. I mean, it had to change some things. I mean, I wrote this letter from my heart. He gets there and finds out not so much. Uh, They were still a mess. There was still a lot of uh, spiritual opposition there and political opposition. Uh, It was still a big mess, and it really kind of set him back on his heels because there were still people opposing the message he was bringing. There were still people opposing the ministry. And I think some of the people that had started off you know, actually growing and trying to do things for God were actually regressing because they were getting sucked into this Greek culture, uh, which was very pagan. So it was, it was heartbreaking for him. And so uh, he left and wrote this letter. Now, the funny thing is, is he was getting a lot of grief from the Corinthians and from the people surrounding the Corinthians for some of the stupidest stuff. And I tell you this every week, but literally they got mad at him because he originally he said, I'm going to come and visit you on this day. And here's the route that I'm going to take to get there. Well, things happen. I mean, you know how that is, right? Things happen. And he's like, oh, can't go that day. Guess I'll have to go another day. So he tells them, no, let's do it this day instead, and then I'm going to take a different route. So immediately they started saying, well, he doesn't have any integrity. He lied about when he's coming, and he lied about the direction he's coming, so he shouldn't be an apostle. He has no integrity. And that's the dumbest thing to judge somebody over. But, I mean, generally their harsh criticism, in my opinion, was just likely a reflection of how dark their hearts were at that time. Have you ever been in a dark place and your judgments and your decisions during that time in your life when you look back are kind of dark and you sometimes we re, you know we kind of deflect the blame that should be on us and put it on others when we're in that dark time in our life. I believe that's probably why they were doing this because if not that's just the stupidest the most immature thing to get mad at somebody for I've ever seen. If you get mad because people change their mind they'd hate my gut. I'm just saying. But so Paul wrote this uh, second letter basically to defend his integrity and to remind him that Hey, you're not the only ones that are suffering. 
you're not the only ones that are being persecuted. There's not often you see Paul really open up, but he said, hey, listen, I'm being attacked. All the apostles are being attacked. The disciples that follow with us, we're all being attacked. You are not alone in being attacked. The difference is we're not surrendering. The difference is we are actually taking those attacks head on, believing that God will give us the ability to be successful, and God is bringing us through it. So if he can bring us through it, he can bring you through it. That was his whole kind of purpose for writing this. Now, today, I titled the message we're going to look at today, Hold the Line, and that's because he's really going to try to encourage them to start standing up and, and holding the line of defense uh, because nobody who actually gives up ever succeeds. Okay, now let's jump on in. So today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to try to finish it all, but you know how that goes. We'll see. Uh, so starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I'll try to break this down because Paul's kind of wordy. But... He started by admitting, first of all, I know that this ministry is simply by the mercy of God. I tell you, the best preachers that I've ever listened to, the best pastors that I've ever followed, have been the ones who would openly admit, listen, if God is using me, it's not me. This isn't me. If it were me, I'd make a mess of it. God is using me. That's why I'm successful. When pastors say that, those are the kind of people I like to follow because they got it right in their head. When someone gets up and gets rock star mentality, anybody ever see that commercial about rock stars, by the way? Did you? I think that's hilarious. Anyway, that's, sorry, book took you in the dark regions of my mind. But anyway, um, uh, when, when you start thinking you're a rock star and it's about you, everything goes downhill. And, that's, and Paul was very, very humble. He said, listen, I know that this ministry is the product of God's mercy. So you've got to remember, Paul was the greatest persecutor the church had ever known. I mean, he was the up-and-comer. He was the one that everyone thought would be the next head of the Sanhedrin. I mean, he was a Jew's Jew. He followed the rules. He was self-righteous as all get out. He had the right rabbinical training. Uh, he'd been uh, trained under some philosophers like Gamaliel. He was very intelligent, spoke many languages. He was the up-and-comer. And everybody thought this is going to be the future of Judaism is the Apostle Paul. But what they didn't see coming was that he had a run-in with Jesus. And when he had a run-in with Jesus, like all of us, Jesus changed his entire life. So Paul knew that if I got what I deserved, I would be in hell. I do not deserve to be an apostle of Christ. I don't deserve to carry this message. I put people in prison. I took people to their death for worshiping Jesus. Yet he had mercy on me. So it's only by his mercy that I'm able to even have this ministry. And because of that, and because of his mercy and his grace, I am fully committed to him. That was what Paul was saying. Now notice what he said in verse 2 about renouncing the things hidden because of shame. Look at this again, 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, the things Paul mentioned in verse 2 were referring to the actions of the false apostles. He was just kind of firing a shot across the bow, if you will, because there were false apostles and false teachers all over Corinth. I mean, that's one thing that's been since the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, there was someone there telling lies about God and God's will, right? And it has never changed since. So there were a lot of false apostles and false teachers and in the name of God, they did shameful things for profit and for prestige. That hasn't changed. I mean, turn on some of the Christian networks and you can see it's still going on. You know, 1999, you can have a prayer cloth and all your you know, problems will be healed. I'm like, oh, if you're that powerful, why don't you just pray about it and forget it and not send me the cloth and make me pay 1999. But it's still going on, right? I mean, it's still going on. This stuff was happening back then. And so 
he was saying we're not adulterating the word of God, meaning we're not, we're not using the word of God for personal advantage. That's not how we're doing things. You know, he was saying that's how they do things, not how we do things. We work by the mercy of God. So he was likely referring to some of these accusations they were making. You know, if you can't do better than someone, a lot of people just soon tear that person down. You ever notice that? If you can always tell if a team's doing well in sports or an, an athlete's doing well in sports, why is it people hate them? I'm going to give you some examples. Tom Brady. Enough said. Okay. Let, let's be honest. Uh, Lord, I, I hate that this is going to be recorded. <laughs> but he's probably the greatest quarterback to ever live. <laughs> give me a second. That one hurt. <laughs> right? But no one liked him. I'm not a big Rays fan because I have all my teeth. But um, just kidding, Rays fans. NASCAR fans do not call me. That's a joke. No, but um, remember when Jeff Corden was winning all the time? Everybody hated the man. A lot of times when someone's being successful, the people who are trailing behind will try to attack them to slow them down, right? That's what they were doing. A lot of these, were make, uh, these false apostles and false teachers were making accusations about his desire to control people. See, people were following him and listening to him, and they're like, we've got to find a way to shut him down. So they said, well, here's the accusation they were making. They were saying, well, he's actually just withholding information. He just gives you enough information to make you dependent on him. If he were really powerful, he'd come in and fix everything, but he just gives you a little bit at a time because he wants you dependent on him and he wants to control you. That was the accusation that was going around about Paul. And Paul said, listen, I want you to remember something. I have always been transparent. I have always been dedicated to teaching the truth of God's word. That has never changed. He had never used deceptive or manipulative tactics to profit from the word of God. As a matter of fact, he could have and had every right to be paid for his services, right? But he refused to be paid. He was a tent maker by trade, and he continued to do that. Not because it's wrong to be paid, but because there were so many accusations swirling around about him. He thought, you know what, I'm going to get rid of one of them. And one of them is that I'm doing it for money. So when I go in every town, I work. And I earn my own way. So when he would take up collections, it wasn't for him. He'd take up those collections, and he would take them to other churches and other pastors. But he himself, he avoided all that. He never tried to be deceptive. Even when he could have profited from God's word and it would have been okay, you know, it's okay to pay the guy, he didn't because of all these accusations, right? And it was obvious that what he was doing was God's will because there's no one in Scripture in the New Testament that was attacked more than Paul. I mean, the enemy relentlessly tried to silence Paul at every turn. There are, I can't think of anybody that would endure what he endured and kept going. I'd love to think of myself as that person who would stand and and in the face of persecution, and, and I just don't know. Do any of us know until we're there? I'd love to say that. I'd love to say that, but, you know, I'd hope I could, but he did. I mean, they beat him almost to death several times, imprisoned him all the time, constantly being accused, but in his mind, it was a small price to pay, right? Now, in verses 3 through 6, Paul basically said, listen, if you're not comprehending the truth, it's not because I'm holding back. It's not because I'm not telling you the whole truth. It's on you. You're allowing yourself to be deceived. Look at verse 3. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. Uh, in, in whose case, the God of this world. Underscore that if you're following along in your Bible. That's important. Um, in whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, he was saying he and the others were actually teaching the truth every chance they had. It wasn't the teaching that was wrong. It was that people weren't perceiving it because they were blinded. Some people were blinded to it. I had a lady come up to me one time. I'll never forget this. Have you ever met the people who are real emotional about church? And that's okay, right? But if you're not jumping and hollering when you're preaching, they say you're not actually preaching. And I'm like, I have no evidence that Jesus was doing jumping jacks when he preached. I'm sorry, I just don't see that, right? But they come up to me one day, and I'd preach this message. And if you know me, I have the worst preacher's guilt of any human being alive. I never get out of this pulpit and go, I killed it, you know? When I get out of this pulpit, I'm going, Lord, I sure hope I didn't get in your way, Right? Well, I had a lady come up to me one time. She goes, yeah, I don't think that message was any good at all. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you. And she goes, yeah, I just don't think that the spirit was in that message at all. And I don't know, it just kind of got in my crawl a little bit. So I looked at her and I said, did you ever consider the possibility that maybe it's not the sender that's broken, but the receiver? <laughs> and yeah, she left. But anyway... But, hey, I mean, that's a legitimate question, is it not? You know, is it sure the receiver's not broken, you know? So this is kind of what he was saying. He's saying, listen, we're teaching the truth. There's no two ways for me to tell you when I read this scripture to you. It's true, okay? If you're not receiving the truth of God's word, either you're blinded by religion or blinded by the enemy, in which case both are by the enemy, because that's what religion is from, is the enemy. He's saying it's not our fault that you're not listening to the word of God, that you're being blinded by the enemy. Now notice that he calls the enemy, this is Satan, but he calls him the God of this world. Small g, God of this world. And what that means is, this is his domain. You know how people always make it sound like Satan's in hell sitting on this big fiery throne, he's got the pointy tail and the pitchfork and the, you know, which I don't even know where all that came from. But anyway, he's nowhere near hell. He's here. He's got access like we can't even imagine. The Bible tells us in Job that he walked in before God. And God said, so, hey, what are you doing? And God knew what he was doing. And he said, oh, you know, just walk around, see who I can destroy. What's up with you? I mean, that's basically what it was, right? So he is here, and his time is now. This world is temporary, and so is he, right? And so is his evil plan. It's temporary. The, he is the God of this evil world system. That's what that's talking about. And the enemy knows how to blind us because we're easy to figure out. Someone asked me one time, do you think the enemy, do you think the devil can read our minds? And I said, no, he can't. And they said, well, do you think he's everywhere all the time like God? I said, no, he is not. He just has a lot of demons, right? And people don't understand that, that he is running out of time and he knows it. There's no redemption for him. He knows it. That's why he calls him the God of this world. He's working the best he can and he's not everywhere at all times. He can't read our minds. We're just easy to figure out. Yeah, you know I mean, you can be around somebody for a couple weeks and get a good idea of who they are and what they think, can't you? You can kind of get an idea of whether they're the kind of person you want to hang out with or hide from at Walmart when you see them coming. You just got to figure out which one they are, right? We're pretty easy uh, to read, and the enemy uses things like pride and, and lust and greed and a desire for power. He uses those kind of things to blind us to the eternal. He wants to distract us with those things and blind us 
of the, to the eternal. And I'm not talking literal blindness, but spiritual blindness. Because, listen, the one thing he doesn't want, he doesn't want you hearing God and he doesn't want you talking to God. That's two things the enemy does not want. Because the enemy knows when people start reading God's word and they start praying, that he loses them. Because when you start developing that personal relationship, that open relationship with God, the things he's throwing at you to tempt you just aren't that tempting all the time anymore. So he is doing his best to keep us distracted with those things. Now, Paul mentioned spiritual blindness because evidently some were questioning his message. People who he had, he had been around for 15 months, people he trusted, people he'd probably helped and trained, started turning on him, and there was a thing they were saying about him. They started saying, if your message about Jesus is so true and so powerful, why, why are there people who don't believe? Why doesn't everybody believe it? You know, Jesus even said that the road is broad that leads to destruction, and many there are that find it, but the road is narrow that leads to righteousness, and few there are that find it. I mean, that's just been from the beginning. We are always going to love ourselves more than we do anybody else. So if we, you have a choice, most people say, take this road where you submit to God, or take this road where you do whatever you want. Most people are going to take the latter. You know what I mean? They're going to take the other road. And so they were asking him that, and Paul responded by reminding him, listen, the reason everyone doesn't believe is because there is powerful opposition to the word of God. There is powerful opposition, speaking of the enemy. See, what we don't realize is Satan is the second most powerful supernatural being in existence. The second most powerful next to God, right? Remember, God is comprised of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Next to them, he's the most powerful thing ever created. And it's very plain that Satan is good at his job. Making you second guess, making sure that you're not completely committed, keeping you sidetracked with things that are temporary. Uh, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, starting in verse 8. He said, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly okay that's satan's job and he's good at it satan was blinding some of these corinthians and he still is blinding the world back then he was trying to blind the world he's still doing it today and it's not as difficult as you think to blind people to the truth about the word of god even believers get blinded to truth sometimes and it, it's frustrating because by nature we are creatures that love ourselves we just are by nature we are more worried about pleasing ourselves than anybody else you actually have to fight against that nature have you ever noticed you don't have to teach kids to lie it just happens i mean if there's two kids in a room and one something ends up broke what's going to happen two fingers pointing at each other i mean that's just who they, i mean that's who we are and they just don't hide it you know you don't have to teach kids to be stingy you have to teach them not to you don't have to teach kids to to not hit people i mean to hit people you have to teach them not to hit people Right? Unfortunately, there's not a lot of parents doing that anymore, but I'm just saying, you have to teach kids to go against this, this sinful nature that's in each one of us. It's so simple. So by nature, since we're, since we're sinful creatures who desire to please ourselves, Satan still uses those same things that are easy to keep us distracted. Like I said, pride's a big one. Bitterness. You know why Satan wants you holding grudges? Because bitter people don't get closer to God. He says, if you don't forgive, you can't be forgiven. He uses bitterness. He uses religion. And I'm telling you right now, I get emails about this, but I'm, you know, I'm never going to stop saying it. Religion is bad. 
It is man's attempt to reach God. Religion is a group of people under a, a doctrinal name, generally, that come up with rules that supersede the ones that were given to us by God the Father and tell us to follow them so they can judge us as worthy of their praise. That's basically religion in a nutshell, right? And it's not a good thing. See, that's why, as believers, we need to separate ourselves from the people and places that tempt us to ignore God's word. Listen, I've had issues before with drugs and alcohol when I was younger, and God delivered me from that. But I'm telling you right now, I, whenever I would try to quit, I couldn't be around my old buddies that did those things. Because you can't try to quit and have those people all around you doing those things. And whenever I'm counseling people who are struggling with addictions or struggling with things like that, I say, listen, if you really want to quit, get out of that whole scene. Get yourself out of it. You're not going to be able to walk on the straight and narrow with people like that around you, tempting you. You need to remove yourself from places that tempt you like that. Instead, we need to surround ourselves with people who encourage our faith. I love this in Psalms 27, 17. He says, iron sharpens iron, so one man what? Sharpens another. Okay, thanks to one person who ever said that. Right? So one person or one man sharpens another. One of the things I love to do is I love to hang out with my friends that want to talk about the Bible, that want to challenge me about theology, that want that challenge me to study things, we discuss things. I have friends that believe totally different than me. And we're still friends, and people go, well, how can you do that? Well, we both believe that Jesus is king. We both believe that faith is what takes you to heaven. We agree on the essentials. But it's really neat having someone to challenge the things you believe and make you go back and look again. That's iron sharpening iron, right? As a leader, the, la the worst thing you can do is surround yourself with people who are yes men. Oh, you're right, Pastor. You're right, Pastor. Those people will kill you. You've got to find people who will challenge you. And that's what this is saying. We need to be around people who challenge us to be stronger in our faith, not pull us back into that, that pit of destruction that we always end up falling into. So in verses 7 through 12, Paul describes the struggles in, that he and the other apostles faced and disciples and still remain faithful. So look at this. Now, this is a really cool part of Scripture. I hope I can get through it. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he said, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Now, this treasure in earthen vessels is the treasure he's talking about is referring to the word of God he's just been talking about, the knowledge of Christ. That's the treasure that God has given us, the knowledge of the Redeemer, of Christ. The earthen vessels he's speaking of is our bodies. It's our bodies. You know, sometimes I think we forget. We came from dirt. That's, we are dirt that's walking around and breathing. That's what we are. You know, don't tell Maybelline that, but these, you know, these faces are made of, of dirt. Right. And that's who we are. We are earthen vessels, temporary vessels that God created and breathed life into. And he's talking about well, the treasure that's in these earthen vessels is the word of God that he stored in them. And this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Second Corinthians 318. Look at this. 17 and 18. He says, now the Lord is spirit, capital S. Uh, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as uh, from the Lord, the Spirit. So basically what he's saying there is that we are being transformed. As these bodies die, we're getting closer to being just like Jesus. As these bodies die, we're getting closer to getting that glorified form, right? So the gospel Paul and the apostles was teaching was the treasure. And it was more valuable than any earthly treasure. And because of this, this message 
was so powerful because it, it, the thing that made this so valuable is it had the escape from hell. It had the new birth. This is the key, the recipe to eternal life that he was placing inside these earthen vessels. Now, the argument Paul's making is why, did, why would God store something so valuable in bodies that are dying, in earthen vessels? He didn't store it in some royal container, but in the hearts of every believer. And the reason he did that was because he wanted us to be walking around sharing that treasure rather than hiding it in a treasure chest and hoping no one finds it. That's the difference. He put it in earthen vessels. He wanted us to share that. Our bodies are supposed to be tools that he uses in his bag to accomplish his will. And even though these vessels are dying daily, while we're alive, we carry the most valuable message out there, right? Now, listen to this, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. I don't know if you ever thought about it like this. I don't like it when people say, I'm not called to share Jesus with people. I know it sounds strange, but I've literally had people tell me, yeah, I don't talk about Jesus with other people. That's not my calling. I'm like, are you saved? Then it is your calling. It absolutely is your calling. You don't have to write a book but you can share your faith with people. Because we, if you think about it, what you know that saved you, you can save someone with. You have the power in you through faith to save the entire world if they'll believe that message. That exists in each one of us. And John told us about that in John cha- 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, when you hear that, it's, he's not saying it's possible to be without sin. He was basically saying the opposite. He was just saying, I'm writing you this so that you won't sin, but I know you're going to, so when you do, right? That's what he was saying. Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation or full payment for our sins. Now, listen to this. He's talking to believers, all right? And he says, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of what? The whole world. Right? I've had people tell me before, well, that doesn't mean the whole world. I'm like, crazy, because the word in the Greek is cosmos, and it means everything in existence, the whole world. So we carry the message of faith that is powerful enough to save the entire world. Right? That's why it's a treasure inside of each one of us. And people always say, well, why would God choose to store that message in such weak and dying vessels? Because God wanted people to know that it wasn't about us. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the church. It's not about the denomination. It's about the message. And people, when they see you, they know you're not perfect. I, that's an argument people use. Why well, don't share the gospel? Because if people look at my life, they see me make mistakes. That's why it's so powerful. Because he gave eternal life to somebody who's a big screw-up, like you. That's basically it, like me. He's saying, listen, I'm giving the message of eternal life to people who will not change the channel if they can't find the remote control. You know what I mean? That's who, they'll let mail pile up for three days if it's raining. I'm putting, I'm putting the message that can deliver the world in the hearts of flawed man because when people see flawed man and hear that powerful message, they have to know it's from God. That's why he used these earthen vessels. He didn't want any confusion as to where that message uh, came from. Now, in verses 8 through 12, he basically said, you know, despite all the persecutions, we've still been able to hold the line. So look at this, verse 8. This is powerful stuff. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not what? But not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying 
of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. I get it. Paul's wordy, right? But this is really powerful what he's saying here. See, the downside of being an earthen vessel is that we can be easily cracked and easily broken. That's just the downside. And to illustrate that point, Paul listed the struggles that they'd all endured. He said, first of all, he said they were afflicted uh, in every way but not crushed. And that's so much clearer in the Greek. The word afflicted comes from the Greek word thalibo, and it means uh, pressed against or crowded. This word would apply, you ever been in an elevator and there's two of you? And you hear that ding on the second floor. And it opens up and the Waltons get in. You know what I mean? Like 10 people climbing the elevator. Anybody ever have that happen to them? How many people get off that floor when it happens? I am claustrophobic. I take the stairs when I can. The devil knows it. So every time I get in the elevator, he sends a family of 12 to get in there with me. But when they're all smashed against you, that's what this word would be, pressed in on all sides, right? That's what afflicted means. He was saying the enemy may be persecuting us from all sides, trying to get us surrender, trying to break our resolve, but he's not succeeding because we are holding the line by faith because we know that we come out on top, right? And the enemy uses that same tactic uh, today that he used in Paul's time. The enemy loves to use things that, that press against us from all sides and pressure us to change our minds. Have you noticed that the world right now pushes everything anti-God is good and everything pro-God is bad? Have you noticed that? And it's unbelievable how we're suckering and buying into it, right? I mean, it's, it's getting crazy in the schools. It's getting crazy everywhere because all sides are closing in, just like on Paul, trying to get everybody to just say, I'm done, I quit, I'm done, I'm sick of it. That's what's happening. It's still happening today. He uses the government to press against us. I don't even think I have to explain that, do I? I mean, everybody has a grip on that one, right? He uses the government uh, to do that to us. He uses the media. I'm at the point with the media, I don't know about you guys, I don't even care. Do you? I don't even listen to it anymore. I just, I can't do it. I listen to it and I think, ugh, we're closer to the end than I thought. I probably shouldn't think that, but that's what I think when I, when I just, I'm done with media. Uh, they're not actually giving us the news <laughs> anymore. Popular culture is really bad. I mean, we see that all the time. Social media is the greatest blessing and the greatest curse of my life. You know what I mean? When it first came out, I thought, this is awesome. We'll be able to see our friends and family as, you know, that have moved across the continent, around the country, and we can still stay in touch with them. Yeah, that's not how it's being used, right? Social media is pressing in from all sides and destroying us. It's unbelievable. That's another sermon, though. Hollywood. Anybody notice Hollywood is trying to push us away from our faith? Anybody notice that? You ever notice every time they mention religion or a man of God in a movie or in a TV show, we're always the buffoon that stole somebody's wife or <laughs> robbed the church? You ever notice that? They never used to be. They used to have people of respect when they had pastors and ministers and priests on TV. Now they're the, they're the court jesters on TV. And that's just to name a few. But like Paul, you know, we know that the the only way the enemy succeeds is if we surrender. That's the only way he succeeds. You know, I was sitting and thinking to myself, imagine, 70-some percent, I think it is now, claim to be born-again believers in this country, okay? I'm not their judge. 
if 70% of the people in this country banded together for Christ and held the line, every politician would pander to us. You know that? They'd pander to us. But instead, we sit back quietly and let the 2% and 3% groups run their mouth all the time. And so who do they pander to? Them. Right? Listen, if we were doing what God wanted us to do, we would not stand for it. We would come together and say, this, this nation was created one nation under God, and by goodness, we're going to keep it that way. You know what I mean? We just, unfortunately, there's a lot more people giving up than standing up. That's just the way it is right now. So I think the big lesson you can take from this is that, you know, it's, we have to change our perspective of suffering if we're going to make it through the suffering. It's not going to change. It's going to get worse. I'm just going to tell you this right now. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And we have to make up our mind how we're going to face that, that ridicule and that persecution when it comes. We need to have a different perspective, a more eternal perspective. Paul described it in Romans 8.18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying, yeah, I'm getting beaten. I'm getting thrown in jail. I'm getting lied about. I'm getting talked about. All these things are happening to me. But I also know that if I, only, if I live to be 100 years old, 100 years compared to eternity is nothing. So it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory I'm going to have for eternity. You know, as believers, I think it's easy to get distracted in the pursuit of success in this world because it's sold on us ever since we're little. We're, it's sold on us. But, and it's nothing wrong with being successful as long as worldly success isn't your number one priority. Because think about this for a second. You use your whole life. You work your whole life. This is going to be kind of depressing. I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? So, you know, get out your Prozac. Listen to this. You work your whole life to have a great retirement, right? Let me tell you what pastor's retirements are. Death, just saying. Anyway, but you work your whole life to get retirement, to have a lake home, to have boats, to have all these extra things, right? Then you die and someone else enjoys it who did nothing for it. That sounds awful, but your greedy kids are going, glad you were faithful to work, dad, you know? And Biff, the massage therapist, has got his arm around your wife. Thanks, Biff. How depressing is that? You guys are all going in. I don't want to go to work tomorrow now. <laughs> you know? But the truth, that's the truth, is the truth. I'm going to tell you my McDonald's story because I can. It's not in my outline, but um, I used to work at McDonald's when I was a kid because it was the only place that would work around football schedules. And I met the owner, great guy. He had three McDonald's, and he would show up, and he would make fries with us and cook with us. He didn't just stand and give orders. He put an apron on, and he worked. And we became friendly, and he told me one day, you know, Chris, I'm going to retire by 55. That's my whole goal. He said, I'm young. I'm going to work hard. When I hit 55, I'm going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. He did. He worked hard at all three of his McDonald's, made millions, sold all three of them when he was 55, and he retired, and he died at 56. I'm just a ray of sunshine today, aren't I? <laughs> Y'all are going, I hate going to church sometimes, you know. But... Think about it. I never really thought about that until I got in ministry, and a guy told me one time, he said, you know, he said, I could do anything I want. I could have anything I want. He said, in most people's eyes, I'm a success. I don't know if this is an insult. He goes, but I would trade everything I have for what you have. <laughs> I'm like, so you're saying I'm not a success? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm like the big loser? No, but I know what he meant. He said, I don't see my kids. He said, I never see my kids. He said, we rarely go on vacation because I'm always working said, my wife and I rarely 
have date nights. We rarely get time to spend together. He said, sometimes I feel like I'm walking into a home of strangers and handing over a paycheck. He said, I wish that I just had a normal nine-to-five job. He said, I would rather live in a trailer and know my family. Changed my life when he told me that. Changed my life. Because I started thinking, how sad is it that we are so deceived and so blinded, like Paul's saying, that we sell our whole life out hoping to have something good someday, when every day we could have something good if we'd surrender to God. Every day. You know what the most, the, the most prized possessions I have in this world is? My wife my daughters, my grandbaby, my son-in-law, my family. Those are what's important to me. Those are what's important to me. You know what I mean? I would, I would gladly give up everything I have to know that I could spend more time with my family. That's a treasure that can't be taken from me, right? I can't miss a payment and they repo my grandbaby. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just saying, it changed my life. So then Paul continued on. I better move on before I get going too long here. Might be too late for that. That ship might have sailed. But anyway, Paul continued by saying that he and the apostles were perplexed, but not despairing. And this is kind of neat because perplexed comes from the Greek word opereo, and it means to be at a loss. Have you ever, like, been working on something, you can't figure it out, and you go, I, I don't get it. Anybody ever been there? Usually me and a computer is involved in that process. That's perplexed, Okay. Despairing comes from the Greek word exaporeo. It's kind of a form of the other word, and it means to be in doubt is what that means. So he was saying, listen, their persecution puts us at a temporary loss, meaning we're not sure when we walk into each town if we're going to get thrown in jail or if we're going to get praised. We don't know if we walk into every town if they're going to try to kill us or try to love us. We don't know. Right? We don't know that. But, but we're not utterly lost. They're just setbacks. We're going to keep pressing on. We're not, we may be at a temporary loss, but we're not doubting what we're doing. That's basically what he's saying there, right? So Paul and the apostles had, had a quality that believers today would do good to imitate, right? They, they were not afraid to get knocked down. They were not afraid to get knocked down because they knew God would lift them back up again. You know, the best boxers, the best MMA fighters are not afraid to get hit. They're not afraid of getting knocked down. They know you don't win fights by going that way. You win fights by going toward the fight, right? That's what they were saying. He's saying, listen, you know, we keep pressing on. Yeah, we're going to get hit in the mouth, and we got God in our corner to fix our cuts and send us back to the middle of the ring. I'm okay with that. That was the mentality they have. In our day and age, we are terrified to get hit in the mouth. You know what I mean? I mean, because they had that mentality, they were bold and fearless with their faith. You can't be afraid to get hit and be in the ring. And Paul was saying, yep, we get knocked down. But we always get back up. We always get back up. We know, and it says, you know, despite all this persecution, it says we endure, meaning we know that these things are happening, but we're not forsaken. We get hit in the mouth, but God lifts us back up. They put us in jail. God opens the prison doors. Bad things happen. God makes good things happen. It's just the way it is. It made them bold. We do good to imitate that today. What Paul said in verse 10 kind of illustrates that mindset, and it's kind of an amazing statement of faith. Verse 10, he says, always caring about the body or the, uh, the dying body of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. So all the suffering Paul describes was the same sufferings that Jesus went through in his earthly ministry. And this is such a powerful statement. Basically, he's saying Jesus was glorified for enduring this suffering. When people see us suffering the same thing and not giving up, they see the glory of God working in us, the same glory that was working in Jesus. They say, just like Jesus, they think this is worth dying for. 
that he said it was, a, it was like a pleasure for them to be able to carry the suffering of Christ so that people would know that it's worth it, right? Romans 8, 16 through 18, we just read 18 earlier, said the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's revealed to us. Paul knew that, you know, those who are willing to suffer for their faith will be rewarded in this life and in the next life. That's what he was talking about. I don't mind carrying the death of Christ with me. I don't mind taking the persecution he did. I know God's going to reward me for it. And this next verse is some of the most powerful in the Bible, 2 Timothy 2.11. He said, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we die with him, we will also live with him. That's talking about believing and becoming have an eternal life. In verse 2, it says, if we endure, we will reign with him. We will also reign with him. What it's saying is if we, after being saved, endure the persecution he endured at any level, when he reigns as king, we reign with him. This is the same thing that Paul was saying. Now, I'm going to try to get through the rest of this. We look at verse 13. He says, but having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore, I spoke. Uh, we also believe, therefore, we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise, uh, will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of the Lord. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary uh, light and affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So in verses 13 through 18, he's actually quoting Psalms 116.10 is what he's doing. Okay, Psalms 116.10 says, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. Now if you read that section, uh, what Paul's doing is he's comparing himself to the psalmist. This psalmist was saying, I'm willing to be afflicted. That's why I continue to believe and preach it. I'm, it's worth it to me to be afflicted, to share the truth. Paul was comparing himself to that. Somehow, this psalmist had been delivered from serious danger, somehow serious peril. And the psalmist knew that if he were faithful, God would always protect him no matter what happened, right? And so Paul was saying the same thing. He was saying, listen, if I remain faithful, I have nothing to fear. Paul even said that, you know, though he's physically dying every day, the spiritual man's getting stronger every day. When Paul saw his body dying, how many people notice your body dying as you get older? Let's be honest here. How many people it takes longer to get out of bed than it ever did before? Raise your hand. How many people found out there's muscles in your body you didn't know you had that hurt now? <laughs> They're so bad I can't describe them. I'll talk to, like, you know, the people. I go to massage therapy or something. They say, what hurts? I'm like, you know, let's just save some time. It all hurts. Everything hurts, right? This body's dying every day, and you know the way Paul looked at it? Yep, it hurts to get out of bed. My knees crack when I stand up. You know, hair's falling out. Wrinkles are coming in. But know this. Notice I do wrinkles, because that means they got, you know, rolls, too. He said, but I know this. As I see the body dying, I know that I'm getting closer and closer to that glorified body that God promised me someday. So the joy in getting old is knowing that I'm getting closer to realizing the eternal life I've been given. That was his perspective, and I just think that's so powerful. He said the spiritual man, I mean, the, the physical man may be dying daily, but the spiritual man is being 
renewed. You know, some believers were just too focused on the visible things of the world in Corinth. That's what was pulling them away, the things we talked about earlier, you know, like wealth and power and personal accolades and possessions. But Paul reminded them that those things are only temporary. Those things are only temporary. What I tell you about those earlier, Biff spending it with your wife later. That's what's going to happen to it. Your spoiled kids are going to spend it and probably lose it in a year, right? All those things are just temporary. And no matter how successful you are, none of that's going to matter when Jesus comes back. That's what he's saying. He's like, when the Lord comes back, you can't look at him and say, yeah, I never prayed, I never read, didn't have much time for church, didn't have much time for anything spiritual, but I want you to know I have three condos. Got a really nice boat on Lake Erie. He's going, yeah, how good's that going to help you in the grave, my friend? You see what I mean? None of that matters. He's saying, why are we focused on that? Right? Jesus spoke of the same thing in Matthew 16. I'll close here pretty quickly. Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, disclaimer, this is not a salvation verse. This is a discipleship verse, right? Remember, he's talking to his disciples at this time. They were believers. This is a discipleship verse, not a salvation verse. I'll explain that some other day why that's so important. But anyway, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will what? Will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That word soul in the Greek is psyche. It means life. He's saying, what does it matter if you have everything if it costs you your life? Right? And it says, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Same word, life. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. So Jesus was basically saying the same thing Paul was. Listen. Make sure what you're striving for is worth it, because someday you'll give an account for every bit of it. Everything you've done, you'll give an account for someday. So Paul hoped that these words would inspire him to get their priorities straight again. Because as long as the Corinthians were focused on everything else other than God, they were never going to succeed. And it had to be frustrating for him, because he's going, oh my gosh, you've heard the stories. How God opened the doors for the prison, how God's delivered me from certain death. And still you want to serve the world? Why is it that Christians today want to read books about people who love Jesus but don't want to write stories with their lives about serving Jesus? You know the greatest book you can ever contribute to this world is the story of your life in faith with Christ. That's, and you write it every day with every step and every word. You write that book. And when you die someday, people will read through the memories of your memoirs in their minds. Right? I want them to remember Jesus about me. And Jim Skeeper. Just saying, those are the two things. Right? Outside of that. <laughs> no, but seriously, the work of my life, I don't want it to be what I've done in coaching. I don't want it to be what I've done as a pastor. I want it to be, look what Jesus did to that guy. He was worthless. And Jesus took somebody worthless and did something with it. He died worthless, but Jesus did something with worthless. You know what I mean? That's what I want people to remember. Here's my motto, then I'll close. I've read this. If you ever get a chance, read the story of Balaam and Barak, where God used a donkey to teach them. When I first got saved, People say, I just can't believe you're saved. I said, well, he used a donkey. He can use me. You know, that's the way, which is a sad outlook. But I'm just saying, that's the way I want to be remembered. Because all the other things will pass away. But what you've done for Jesus will remain. I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, would you please bow your heads? If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation.
If there's anyone here who'd like prayer, just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And if you're watching online, I'll be praying. Bless those people. I don't need to know why, but I do pray. Bless those people. Bless those people. Listen, if you're watching again, that we're, we're praying for you too. I always pray for us believers. Let's go ahead and pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for the love you've shown us on the cross. I love you so much because you love me first. When I had nothing to do with you, when I was trying to find ways to hide from you, you sought me out. Everywhere I turned, I couldn't escape your love and the people you were putting in my path. I can't understand how you can love somebody that much, but you love us all that much. You knew we'd never be good enough, yet you came and died for us so that we wouldn't have to be. We could get our righteousness from you. We just pray, God, that if there's someone here who doesn't know you or listening or watching that doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, remove it. Because you're not concerned with what they are or what people think about them. You're concerned with who they want to be. And if they can trust you, your word promises they'll be a child of God. And if they make that decision, I just pray they contact us. But for those of us who are believers, God, let us see. I would love for you to open our eyes so we could see the spiritual warfare going on around us and realize there's more important things than what we can stick in our accounts and what we can possess. Give us a passion for the wealth that comes from above, the love of Christ, the strength of faith, and let us impact our family and friends and those we come in contact with because we believe the time is short. We just thank you, God, for all that you do, and we just pray that you would keep us safe and let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.